Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Michael Touchton and Amanda Ashley, co-authors of the new book, Salvaging Community, How American Cities Rebuild Closed Military Bases. Michael Touchton is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. Amanda Ashley is Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Community Development in the School of Public Service at Boise State University. We spoke to Michael and Amanda about how they became interested in what American communities are doing to successfully redevelop former military bases in their city, why collaborative governance is the key to success, and what they would tell communities whose base has been closed or is slated to close in the near future. Hello, Amanda and Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you. You are the co-authors of the brand new book, Salvaging Community, How American Cities Rebuild Closed Military Bases. The book offers a comprehensive evaluation of how American communities can successfully redevelop former military bases. Tell us a bit of the backstory on how this project came together. Sure. Um, Mike, do you mind if I take a stab at this one? I think it was your idea originally, so I think you should take it. So when I was a a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, I was working on my dissertation, which focused on arts and creative industries. And I was looking at um, a variety of different uh, cultural pop-ups or creative um, spaces that were opening in unconventional areas. And so it just so happened that Um, some of these places were on former military bases. And so, for example, the Philadelphia Navy Center has the corporate headquarters for Urban Outfitters. And the Brooklyn Navy Yard has the uh, Steiner Film Studios. And so it just so happened that that kind of like percolated in my head, like what's actually happening with these military bases? Like in some part, they look so desolate. Um, and they look like they're trying to revitalize, but against a very um, strict and severe set of um, environmental, political, and social conditions. And so I had kind of put that in the back burner of my my mind, and when I came to Boise State, um, there was this uh, new faculty member in political science, Mike Touchton, um, and he and I started talking about this, and I think really kind of piqued our interest um, and our very different kind of research expertise and background. Um, I tend to be more of a qualitative researcher and Mike is, um, you know, an expert in quantitative analysis. And so uh, we thought we could bring our different backgrounds, both in comparative politics and urban politics together to really explore, explore this area. And um, I think just a few meetings and conferences, coffee shops, and potentially a bar or so um, led us to really starting to lay down our ideas for a book and actually for a much longer research project that we imagine going probably for the next 10 years or so as we start to unravel different aspects of military-based redevelopment. Yeah, that's a fantastic introduction and I, I second it all wholeheartedly. My background is in governance and development primarily from a comparative perspective, and most of my work prior to this book occurred outside of the United States. But when talking with Amanda, we recognized that this is a huge issue area. There are hundreds of closed installations in the US and thousands more around the world. They're in various stages of disrepair and all the way to full redevelopment. But 
we didn't have a good handle on what explains the outcomes, what the relevant inputs and processes are that might lead to those outcomes. And really, we couldn't find any repository of good information for communities that were going through this multi-decade effort to try to salvage themselves and really survive in some cases, thrive in other cases. And so two backgrounds, I think, complement each other really well. And so then we found that we could engage in this project in a way that no one else really could, at least not up to this point. And so we provided this um, quantitative focus with deep case study uh, efforts and a long-term redevelopment challenge that we could hopefully help meet. I think, um, you know, something that Mike, you know, really points to is the fact that we're both really interested in like in applied research. So research that we can do to help communities um, be more thoughtful about redevelopment, um, especially complex redevelopment projects such as base, um, base conversion. Yeah, we saw that communities really had nowhere to go and that they were operating independently from one another and generally in the dark. They weren't getting a lot of help. You have the US military, which provides some kinds of assistance, but it's very one-sided and the power differential is so huge that we wanted to give communities a leg up in, this, uh, in meeting this challenge and generally just information that they could use to their benefit and to their residents' benefits. Think, and also to acknowledge the way that um, these, you know, policymakers and people that are on the ground that are negotiating such a series of complex forces and complex partnerships, um, and the fact that like these bases aren't like simple redevelopment projects that take a year or two to complete, but they're often 30 to 50 years in the making, and all of the flux that happens within that. And so this notion of how do you remain resilient in that? and um, both from a um, organizational perspective, but also from a redevelopment perspective um, in terms of outputs and, um, and impacts. That's great. You're providing an excellent resource for communities that are struggling with these issues. I mean, I know that every year the Pentagon budget uh, has um, base closings built into it. And so um, it's a scary thing for being in a community that, that their bread and butter is that base. Exactly. Um, and your research concluded that collaborative governance was the key component that made a base closing more successful than uh, what people would expect. Tell us a little bit more of what uh, collaborative governance is to you. Sure, and let me start with it. Of course, this is a complicated concept and we expand upon it in, in the book, but generally speaking, I think of this as a governing arrangement where a public agency, in this case, possibly a local redevelopment authority, possibly a local government, engages with stakeholders across a horizontal spectrum, but also up and down a vertical ladder. These are stakeholders from within the state, that's other agencies, um, state, federal, other horizontal agencies within the city government, but also the nonprofit public and private sector to make collective decisions that end up jointly implementing public policy and managing public programs. The goal then is, is for community benefits in this context, but the collaboration, the collaborative aspect uh, recognizes that these 
programs and policies are tremendously complex and that stakeholders exist all across that horizontal spectrum at the local level, but also vertically at the state and federal level. That's also where we find inputs, resources, and constraints. So encompassing that constellation of inputs, processes, and stakeholders for these outcomes is what collaborative governance is all about. And it's necessary to generate beneficial outcomes for the community. It's very difficult to achieve, but when achieved, we see beneficial outcomes in a way that you wouldn't expect just from judging the financial prospects of an area or the revenue that a government has or their market value based on the location of a base. So you can get very strong outcomes with collaborative governance in places where you wouldn't expect and very weak outcomes because of a lack of collaborative governance in places that you also wouldn't expect. And these bases are very, very large. And um, well, not all, but, but a, a large share of them are, um, have a very large physical footprint. And so you're talking about partners that go into the overarching planning of the entire base itself, but then also specific retail, commercial, residential projects that are on different parcels of the base. And so, you know, I think what, when we were looking at, you know, our research, we were seeing 30 to 50 partners um, on all of these different cases that we were studying. And so um, that kind of magnitude shows that, you know, um, the notion of a public-private partnership, which tends to be very popular in planning and urban politics right now, doesn't encapsulate that idea at all. Um, neither does something where we uh, talk about just the transfer from a large federal agency to a single municipality. I think anybody that knows anything about California politics would laugh at that, right? That there's all these different types of agencies, these private partners, these civic actors that are all negotiating to support their own mission missions, like their own values, um, their own bottom lines, um, and so on. And so that process doesn't just have a single endpoint, but it's, it's ongoing over the course of 30 to 50 years or so. And different players come into the game and leave the game um, all at different different points. And so that brings with it both opportunities and challenges um, uh, in exploring the idea of what collaborative governance means in theory and how it actually performs um, in real world situations. But with it, when it comes to real world situations, where do you see is the fulcrum point? Is it, is it the, the local community? Is it the state level or the federal level? Obviously they need to all work together, but who is the central actor that makes this uh, vertical integration worth uh, most effectively? Well, for our communities, it either happens at the local level in some sort of clearinghouse or institution or, or tends not to. I mean, the, the federal government's mission, especially the military, is to close a base, transfer land, and leave, and to do so with as few challenges as possible. The community's mission is, is much different. It's long-term redevelopment for the health and well-being of, of the community. Uh, and then, as Amanda said, you have different actors with different interests that also collaborate on these projects. And so managing that collaboration, governing it as we conceive of it, ends up happening primarily at the local level, sometimes through a separate institution like a redevelopment authority, sometimes just through the mayor's office or city government office. Uh, but it is also, is quite difficult. I mean, the challenges of managing relationships with 30 to 50 actors 
many of whom are more powerful and have more resources than the city government or than a redevelopment authority is, is difficult. But communities that designate lead offices and create that kind of central hub and clearinghouse for relationships, information, and more importantly, deliberation and collaboration end up uh, generating outcomes that I think are far more beneficial to the community than if you have a single partnership with one developer, the city government, and everybody else is left out. Because there are a great many other stakeholders that should be involved, and in many cases are, but it becomes chaotic. In other cases, are not, and you see privatization of public uh, land and, and benefits. And I think um, what can be very unsatisfying um, about the notion of collaborative governance is that there isn't a single person, a single entity, a single agency. Um, and I think that's what shows like the complexity about how these bases um, do get redeveloped in both fits um, and starts. And I think one of the, the bigger um, kind of findings that we had is that we were going through this is like a lot of the research tends to focus either on the local, state, or federal level. Um, but doesn't always recognize the role or the power that regional agencies play in working with those local governments, particularly when you're de dealing with um, uh, broader issues around the environment, um, housing, uh, and so on. And so really, um, I think to amplify what Mike is saying, it's those local regional connections uh, when they're able to advocate um, and, and, and figure out how to harness resources and build capacity uh, that really can drive um, a, a large part of this process. I think where we often see a lot of communities get into trouble is in focusing entirely on specific projects rather than an overarching planning goal or planning objective. For them, that's where they often get, in, get into a little bit of trouble. Interesting, interesting. So within your research, which community do you see, and, it, and it's difficult to extrapolate and take that community and expand it to all the, you know, 50 states, but is, was there one community in, in particular that you said, hey, they did, the, they did everything, check mark, check mark, check mark, and they did the right thing? Well, we have three case studies in, in our book where we focus much more tightly on, on these processes. And all of them that we witness have, or leave room for criticism, I should say, and no outcome, of course, is going to be perfect. But from among our three cases, the San Diego example and the redevelopment of the Naval Training Center showcase community benefits in an environment that was difficult, but the, the redevelopment of the base occurred on a relatively short time frame. And mixed-use redevelopment also occurred despite quite a few challenges that we see elsewhere. That being said, the San Diego base isn't entirely representative of bases around the country because there was relatively little environmental contamination. And they did have quite a few resources to devote to this area. So they did a very good job, I think, with what they had, and especially in not exposing the public to a lot of financial risk. But in some other areas, like redevelopment on the former Fort Ord, which is one of our other three cases, you see, I think, better outcomes than were to be expected given the colossal challenges they faced, especially with regard to environmental remediation and a lot of unexploded ordnance found throughout 
a very large parcel of land um, abutted by 17 different local jurisdictions wow. or thereabouts, all with a stake in, in redevelopment, not to mention anything throughout the region, the state, or uh, federal considerations. So from that standpoint of a governance perspective, there's, there's a lot of material to be gained or a lot of benefits to be gained from following Fort Ord's example of managing those relationships and the Fort Ord Redevelopment Authority's efforts to do so, though the outcome is not at all what you might like to see of a fully redeveloped former base with uh, community benefits across mixed uses in a wide variety of areas. They're not there yet. They're still probably 20 or 30 years away from accomplishing that. But their governance has been better than expected. And I think the outcomes that we see so far are also probably better than expected. I think like what's so interesting about a lot of these different cases and one aspect is this nature like a public space and civic space. And what do you do with that? In essence, like these bases are supposed to be public because they're run by the you know, federal government um, and the Department of Defense, but they're also very isolated and privatized in other ways. And then suddenly when they are transferred to local communities, it becomes, and often these are in really like ideal locations, um, trying to figure out, um, well, you know, what is the role of that space and of these collaborative partnerships in thinking through, um, how does public space and civic space manifest in these particular spaces? And that often brings um, a variety of different um, controversies uh, around these bases, which we saw a lot in, in San Diego in trying to think that particular thing through. But I would agree with Mike that, you know, I think the Fort Ord case is particularly interesting because of its size, because of the cities um, that it stretches across and that are, that are um, uh, involved, um, but also the, the nature of how um, higher education has played in that transformation um, with uh, Monterey, Monterey Bay um, uh, in, in trying to think through, like, how do you, a piece at a time, redevelop a particular site, um, you know, as they're negotiating uh, uh, how to find financial resources to deal with the, that kind of environmental cleanup, I think is particularly impressive, too. Yeah, I should have mentioned this before. Fort Ord's on Monterey Bay, it's, it's near the city of Monterey. And what Amanda is bringing up too speaks to something we found in the book that addressing redevelopment as an incremental process that's not going to happen overnight and might not happen for 50 years helps communities plan and also moderate expectations as well as focus on one step at a time and governing a process that's going to take decades. So in this, in this sense, in the former Fort Ord, you have Cal State Monterey Bay's new campus, the state level entity. You still have part of an active military base. When the military closes the base, they don't always close 100% of the base and remove 100% of their personnel. So there's a small portion of the former Fort Ord that's still active military. There is federal wildlife refuge and national monument on the base. So you already have local, state, and federal uses all incomplete for a good portion of the redevelopment time we observed. Cal State Monterey Bay is finished. Um, Cabrillo National Monument 
is opened, the military base that's still active or the portion of the base that's still active is still active. And all of this sits uncomfortably within development and redevelopment plans among the many local jurisdictions that have a stake in the base, not to mention all the local community members who are interested in using public space and deserve to get benefits from that public space. So seeing how Fort Ord's redevelopment authority has managed that process over now we're talking about um, a 25 year time frame has been inspirational in lots of ways and has generated outcomes that I think are superior to what would have happened if collaborative governance had not occurred across those mm-hmm. different horizontal jurisdictions and vertically up and down among local state and federal entities. I think, and that's like, you know, when we say 25 years, we're like, Oh, 25 years, that's so long. But like for, that's almost like only halfway through if even that for like a lot of these redevelopment projects as well. Wow. Wow. So yeah, we're talking decades upon decades. And so some communities are, are, you know, in several decades into this process, are there any particular communities that you see on the map in the United States that you say to yourself, you know what, the, on the local level, the, the policymakers, they need a copy of our book. Um, are there any communities that, maybe, maybe they got everyone, you know, but are there any particular communities that come to mind that you're like, you know what, let's, let's take our applied research and make a push to this community and see what, if they can uh, bring about this uh, successful collaborative governance model? Well, it's not totally fair to Alameda because I think they already know what they would have liked to have done in their redevelopment efforts. And it's one of our case studies here too, but I wish I could go back in time and give them this book and frankly, give the federal government, especially the military, but beyond that, Uh, I'd like this book to have fallen on Bill Clinton's desk in 1998 before his administration started asking communities to pay for conveyance of the sites. And in many cases in high value added areas, uh, that administration and the Bush administration continued this, asked them to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for the sites. These sites are predominantly contaminated. Redeveloping them for any use requires quite a bit of remediation and even private developers in hot markets like the greater Bay Area balked at the notion of taking on land and a contamina- decontamination effort that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So when the Clinton administration tried to get the city of Alameda after its base had just closed and revenue had fallen by quite a bit to pay $110 million for the rights to the base, developers backed out of the deal or in another instance in this area reconceived of their development partnership in a way that would have undermined community benefits by increasing population density beyond which the community members were willing to tolerate so they voted down a redevelopment deal in a public referendum because their quality of life would have suffered in their minds due to increased traffic higher density without a lot of higher services, all because the federal government, I think, quite mistakenly decided to try to extract extra value from these closed bases. So Alameda didn't know a lot of this at the time, and eventually, under the Obama administration, uh, the demand for $110 million for the partial was removed. 
and they were able to partner with another developer, create a new deal, one that the public did not vote down and move on with redevelopment. But having this kind of knowledge is something that I'd like to give, give all bases or all former defense communities. In this case in the US, and I can answer this in a little bit of a different way too, and then I'll give Amanda a chance. The last round of base closures in the US was 2005. That means many communities are at least 15 years into the redevelopment process. They could still benefit from seeing this book and reading it and incorporating its lessons. And there are quite a few of those where I, I would think that they would benefit from it, especially the knowledge that there are many more federal programs and prospects for outside resources for redevelopment than they know of. These are mostly smaller communities like Anniston, Alabama, near Fort McClellan, where the high level of environmental contamination resulted in a redevelopment that consisted mostly of putting a fence around the parcel, creating a de facto wildlife refuge, and telling everyone else to keep out. Well, that doesn't offer a lot of community benefits, but navigating the channels in the federal government to figure out how to redevelop that base following some kind of remediation effort is something that Anniston, Alabama would very much like to be able to do. But this is a town without a lot of resources, without a lot of personnel, and my guess is without a lot of previous experience negotiating with the federal government, especially the military, and by extension, Department of Commerce, EPA, Health and Human Services, to try to get grants to um, advance their redevelopment. I think I would also add um, two additional points that beyond just thinking, well, I'll start with the military base piece first. I, I also think a really good audience for this book is for people that work in the federal government, um, particularly looking at the uh, DOD, um, HUD and OEA, um, just because they are looking to provide assistance to communities and to think through their own ways that they um, are involved in these particular projects um, and to help them think through, um, you know, really what these communities need um, and how they might be able to provide support and technical assistance in, the, in that particular in that particular area, um, and then I think secondly, and um, I actually think this book is for uh, communities beyond just military bases. Um, I think that we're seeing a lot of large-scale uh, redevelopment, which is basically like infill and infill. That's really complicated projects where um, collaborative governance is. Um, um, at the essence of how they're going to be able to do that redevelopment. And I think our uh, book um, sheds some light um, on the ways in which that works and the ways in which it's problematic. And so um, I think that that's been what's really great about writing this book as much as it is for communities that are struggling with defense conversion. I think it also speaks just to larger issues um, that cities and regions are facing from a resilience standpoint. Yes, I, let me just add a little bit onto that. In general, former industrial areas that lost their major employer, and this would include half of the cities in the Rust Belt and quite a few elsewhere in the country, would benefit from reading this book and thinking about the long-term challenges and prospects for redevelopment and how different governance structures would help them achieve those goals, but where to begin in the event of a, of a big employer's loss or a military 
face's closure or a natural disaster even. I mean, we conceive of this book as being important for development, redevelopment, um, post-industrial, post-disaster, post-military base, really post any challenge that a community has, has weathered and now needs to regroup and determine how to survive. I like that. I like that. So in that vein, what would you tell communities whose base is slated to close or the major manufacturer has left town or they need some major, or as you said, a natural disaster that requires redevelopment? What, what would you tell communities? What would be, in a nutshell, your advice to them? I would say, um, and again, in a nutshell, so I could speak far greater about the complexity of this, I would say um, collaborative governance um, is hard, but it's worth it. Yeah, that's a, an easy nutshell uh, answer, and I think a great one, too. I would also add that there are more resources than people are aware of. There are programs designed to help out, but it takes some sophisticated, trained personnel to do so. And it takes a deliberate effort to focus on governance even when the sky seems to be falling, to take a step back, think long-term rather than immediate solutions, and to bring different stakeholders into the conversation, as many of them as possible, and to conceive of redevelopment as something for the community that brings community benefits and not just replaces jobs or replaces lost revenue. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights. You have both crafted an amazing resource for communities, uh, for local communities, state and government officials, the Pentagon, and uh, you know, as you said, applied research that can, that can be of real use and make a, a positive change in the world. So we thank you so much for that. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. That was Michael Touchton and Amanda Ashley co-authors of the new book, Salvaging Community, How American Cities Rebuild Closed Military Bases. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on their new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.